0: This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and today I'm talking to writer and critic Annie Zaleski about Wham's Last Christmas. Annie is a longtime music writer based in Cleveland, and she's written about pop music for the A.V. Club, Vulture, Rolling Stone, Salon, and many more outlets. Like me, she also writes about Christmas music. She wrote a brief history of Slade's brilliant Merry Christmas Everybody for Ultimate Classic Rock, and told the story of Joni Mitchell's River, interviewed the old 97's Rhett Miller about writing Christmas songs, and last Christmas season she wrote about Last Christmas, all for Salon. So Since Last Christmas is a song I've had a come-see-come-saw relationship with, I wanted to talk to her about it. For a long time, I heard the song is too lightweight and too schoolyard to land with me. Frankly, I preferred some of the cover versions, particularly Taylor Swift's. But the number of cover versions, along with the bulletproof nature of George Michael's hooks, eventually made me rethink the song, and the showy, stylish melodrama of the video finally sold me. So let's get to it. This is me and writer Annie Zaleski talking about Last Christmas and more on the 12 Songs of Christmas. So, Annie, you're one of the handful of people I'm aware of who's written extensively about Christmas music. What draws it to you as a subject?
1: I mean, Christmas music, uh, so many things. I mean, I think, you know, people think of, uh, you know, people might think of Christmas music as one thing, right? You know, like it's holly and jolly and it's the time of the season. So everything is very, you know, happy and nostalgic. But what I've always liked about Christmas music is that kind of the melancholy edge to it. You know, you listen to so many Christmas songs and, uh, you know, it's it's, you, you might be looking back at the year that you just had and feeling a little bit regretful or, you know, you're thinking about a relationship that, you know, maybe busted up and that you kind of miss or, you know, a missed opportunity. You know, I think at the end of the year, everybody is kind of looking back and seeing where they could have been a better person or things could have turned out better. And I think a lot a lot more holiday music than people realize kind of have that edge. Um, but at the same time, there's also a lot of really fun and obscure Christmas songs that maybe don't necessarily get a lot of airplay. You know, there's ones from like Squeeze and XTC and over the years there've been some ones from like, you know, Soul Coughing has done covers and just there's a lot of just really kind of interesting angles on Christmas music Um you know, kind of out there. And so there, there, there's, there's a lot of different things.
0: Yeah. I have to say, one of the things that drew me to it, in addition to all that, is that for me, it's kind of the place where the art and the business most clearly intersect. Because when, you know, on one hand, these things are absolutely 100%, you know, commercial products. And the most, I mean, they are made to, made to sell in 99% of the cases. And so that's really interesting to me. At the same time, people are having to make, the, the ones we continue to talk about are people making actual artistic decisions. And so, you know, I always felt like the business and uh, the business and art of pop music is in many ways clearest when talking about Christmas music.
1: I think that's an excellent point, you know, because I think it is, it's kind of a rite of passage, like, all right, you know, I need to put out a new single, Oh, I'll do a holiday single. Um, And on the flip side, there's also the kind of the accidental holiday singles. You know, I don't think Joni Mitchell wrote River with any sort of intention of it becoming, you know, something that people associate with the holidays or, you know, The Pretender's 2,000 Miles. Um, You know, there's kind of these songs that are sort of adjacent to holiday music too. And there's something really fascinating about these kind of album tracks that have sort of been canonized as a holiday song, you know, perhaps, you know, something that they, they, perhaps unexpectedly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've always thought some of those were ones that were basically kind of snuck into the canon by people who didn't really like or didn't want to like Christmas music, and so they bring in pretenders, bring in Joni Mitchell as a way of saying, "Oh, here's the good Christmas music."
1: And that's that's exactly it. You know, it's like you know, all right, we need to pad out our playlist. What do we do? Okay, well, we have this here. You know, you have. I mean, you look at like the Pogues record. You right. know, uh, you know. Obviously, I think "Fairy Tale of New York" has turned into this. You know, thing and you look, you look at those lyrics, you're like, boy, that is an unorthodox Christmas song, you know, but it it, it totally works. You yep. know, I mean, I, I always like listening to commercial radio during the holiday season to find out, you know, what they're sort of elevating in a given year. You know, I think Brenda Lee's you know, Rocket Around the Christmas Tree, I think, is like her most popular song now. People almost yep. forget she has this amazing catalog beyond that um, as well. And so there's, 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 it's fascinating to see which artists are, have, have become associated with Christmas, Yeah. even though, you know, they're, you know, in, in certain areas they're known for many other things as well. Yeah.
0: D- do you listen to Chris Malanfi's, um, uh, hit parade on, uh, on, uh, slate podcast?
1: I do. Yeah. He's a friend of mine.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because his, re- he recently, I guess, did an episode on the artist's, who have uh, had Christmas songs that have become in many ways bigger than their entire career. And, and Brenda Lee is, is a great example of that, that uh, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree now easily outsells and outstreams anything else she ever recorded.
1: Which, which is wild. And I think, you know, you, you look at something like that, like obviously kind of the era in which she recorded has really sort of, uh, you know, gone to the rearview mirror in a sense in terms of, you know, commercial radio formats. And so it is interesting that that little nugget of things she recorded still kind of persists too. There's something very charming about that. You know, you listen to Christmas music during the holiday season. It is kind of like this bygone era of radio and, you know, music that you really don't hear any other time of year unless you're seeking it out, Um, which so there's also something very sort of, you know, preserved in amber and maybe, you know, sepia toned about it that, you know, makes that nostalgia and makes the, you know, the, you know, the memory soaked, um, you know, uh, vibe of that music a little more prominent in a sense around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party home
0: where you can see Every start. You know, that's something interesting I hadn't thought about. That when you get to Christmas season and, and when radio stations go to the All-Christmas format, it actually it goes to a, a time of radio that doesn't exist anymore, because, you know, the days of AM. radio were times where you could have um, I mean, I rem- that uh, I think about hearing being in Canada to hearing Roger Whitaker. Uh, next to uh, you know, Gordon uh, Lightfoot and Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, next to uh, Alice Cooper and School's Out, uh, next to Use uh, Corporation and Rock the Boat, and how radio used to be sort of all over the board. And when it comes to Christmas, that you know, those stations are all sort of genre agnostic, and as long as this, the, you know, the content is Christmas... The form stops mattering.
1: That's exactly it. And, you know, I mean, you listen to like, kind of like to your point, you know, listen to Casey Kasem's American Top 40, you know, uh, reruns, and you're just astounded by kind of the diversity of genres there, you know, you have country and soul and pop and funk and rock, and they're all kind of coexisting in this top 40. And, you know, holiday music is kind of a nice throwback to that. And people sort of throw format out the window in a sense, uh, you know, of what they usually do and kind of embrace something a little bit different. Like it is nice, you know, it is. and, And it shows you that radio can be like that. I think this is why people you know, still seek out maybe freeform radio stations or radio stations with a more eclectic playlist because there is something really pleasurable. You, you know, you discover new artists that way.
0: Yeah. You know, another thing I was thinking about as you were talking there when, and how people like Brenda Lee have had so much of their career, you know, Jose Feliciano, others mm-hmm. who have had their careers become defined by their Christmas music. And it makes you wonder in 30 years, if uh Mariah Carey will be known for just one song uh and if the subject of today's conversation, if wham will eventually be just last christmas i
1: you know and it's it is interesting to think about because I think you know the other you know the flip side of we you know talking about all the older artists that really kind of get elevated during the holiday season is that there are very few modern Christmas songs that are kind of hits like Mariah is the bis- biggest example and she certainly leaned into the the, the Christmas season you know she's, she's she really has made it part of her identity. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Kelly Clarkson's another one that, you know, underneath the tree has been very popular this year. So that's kind of been elevated a little bit as well. But, yeah, I mean, and and when you talk about modern, it's, it's, it's almost like 1980 forward. It's, it's very interesting, you know, how few kind of songs from the, you know, the our new wave and beyond era really do kind of linger. Yeah.
0: Did you see the uh, series that uh, Billboard did? on the business of Christmas music this December?
1: Oh, I missed that.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because one of the things they talk about is partly just the business of Christmas music and the degree to which labels are right now starting the process of getting Christmas music ready for next year and starting to target you know, artists and thinking about how to prepare next year. But the other thing that was interesting is that there is is a sort of that there seems to be more possibility for contemporary or more reasonably contemporary Christmas songs to, to go. And for instance, like this year, Ariana Grande's uh, Santa Tell Me had its best year. Um, And that there are, my cat will always walk, walk through. (laughs) Um, And that there are a growing number of, more contemporary songs that are finding audience than certainly used to be the case 10 years ago. I mean, I think about when I first was writing about Christmas music in the, in the 2000s, that the most contemporary song in, the, uh, you know, in any kind of reasonable play was um, Christmas Time Is Here from, um, you know, from Vince Guaraldi from the Charlie Brown soundtrack, which was 1965 that was at the, was in the early 2000s, that was the most contemporary song that would show up in, in radio and, and in sort of in the holiday playlists. I,
1: I think what's interesting about that, and I think that speaks a little bit to, you know, when you look at the radio stations that do maybe go to all Christmas formats during the holiday season, they kind of tend to be the more, for lack of a better word, the retro stations. You know, like here it's this, the the station that plays 70s and 80s music. They'll flip, you know, but... Top 40 radio doesn't necessarily want to kind of ignore that it's the holidays, but they need a song that really kind of fits their format, you know, and so they're looking for someone like Ariana or Justin Bieber yeah. and so kind of having like their, you know, their for the top 40 format, which is always so in the new, in the new, their idea of a flashback is, you know, a, a lot shorter than maybe it would be for, you know, a 70s and 80s station. Right. So I think also that, you know, labels are kind of recognizing that, too, and saying, hey, you know, even these stations, if they're not full on Christmas music 24-7, they still want to, t- you know, reference the holidays. People still like the holidays. So I I would imagine, that would be my guess. Yeah. But that's, that's a lot, what it has to do with it, which is great. Yeah. I love it. You know, the
0: more Christmas music on the radio, the better. Yeah, 100%. I have to say, we're, we're fortunate here. Our all-Christmas station in New Orleans is also, it is the the 70s and 80s sort of light rock uh, station. Uh, but they actually have a pretty unusually aggressively broad um, playlist, far more than the, many of them. And so, for instance, here they will actually play um, Brenda Lee's... Uh, Papa Noel, which oh, wow. w- because, it, because it has a Cajun sound. And so, it, because that the local uh, P, uh, PD picked that because it sort of sounds Louisiana and it does refer to like Christmas down on the bio. And they'll actually play like local stuff. So, Aaron Neville's Christmas music gets played on the local all Christmas. And uh, so, that's actually been, a, you know, we, Louis Armstrong's Christmas music will get played on the local. Uh, you know, largely, you know, sort of nostalgia station. So we actually luck out at Christmas time. We actually get a pretty good station. I know many of them play really narrow playlists and
1: I was going to say that's really cool that there are stations that are still doing that then, because you're right. I think a lot of the formats are very, very tight and are dictated from somewhere else. But the fact that, you know, you could be local and say, hey, we're going to have some music with some local acts. And we we have a, a, a an all-Christmas troupe here called the Ohio City Singers, and they always do original Christmas music. And they get a little bit of airplay, too, on station here which is cool occasionally and right. so it's neat to hear because you're like that is a local band and yeah. they're getting some airplay it, it does that adds that little flavor too and it makes you it, that that's another flashback to you know more personalized radio experience yeah. when you knew that it was they, you were listening to things that were popular in your town from DJs in your town
0: yeah What was your experience with Christmas music growing up?
1: Oh, I mean, it was, you know, it, it, it was a tradition. I mean, my, my dad, actually, it's funny, he uh, loves Mannheim Steamroller. And so during the Christmas season, he'd play Mannheim Steamroller records. And he also likes Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So we have, uh, you know, in the holidays, I have very fond memories of, you know, hearing both of those artists in, wow. in my household. Um, I know, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of one of my favorite stories. I sent my parents to see Trans Siberian Orchestra, and then I interviewed them about it. Um, I used to be the music editor in Alt Weekly, and it was it was it was very charming. It was it was very sweet. Um, but, you know, they turn on the, the radio station and we would listen to the 24-7 radio station, you know, and even to this day on Christmas, you know, uh, we, we come over, my husband and I come over to my parents' house and they'll have the, the station on, you know, so it's, it was all very, you know, it was Christmas music was very much part of my seasonal sort of celebration. And I was in marching band and concert band as well. So we always had holiday concerts. And so I always really grew up with uh, holiday music.
0: Did you ever have a phase where you went sort of out of love with Christmas music?
1: You know, I don't think I ever did. Mm -hmm. I I don't think I ever have. Um, You know, obviously, as an adult, I've been always all in. And I I think, you know, growing up in the 2000s, it was kind of cool. Well, actually, the 90s and 2000s, um, our alternative radio station in Cleveland would play all of these, and our college radio stations too, would play all of these amazing, like, alternative Christmas songs. So, like, I mentioned, like, the Soul Coughing song, Susie Snowflake. Like, they played that all the time. Morphine had a Christmas song they would play. Um, There were some local bands that played. And so, like, the Muddy Muddy Ballstones, Smashing Pumpkins. So all of that stuff. Like, so it made Christmas music kind of, you know, relevant to my generation. So as a kid, I was like, this is great. These are bands I like, and they're, we have Christmas songs. I'm a big REM fan and every year they had a Christmas single. And so sometimes it was a holiday song, sometimes it wasn't, but you know, I had a lot of holiday music from them. So holiday music was always cool in, in the eyes of the bands I liked. So I think I never fell out of love with that. And then in the 2000s, there were just so many amazing compilations like maybe this Christmas on network records, you know, you had bare naked ladies and Sarah McLaughlin and, you know, and all, just all sorts of stuff. And so, uh, you know, they, they, they Christmas music was always sort of this, this thing that people always really embraced and people were never too cool to embrace it. So I think I never fell out of love with it.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. My experience is a little bit different because I'm a little bit older than you are. And when my teenage years, I started to you know, you know I I was that punk rock was was important and like Christmas music was Andy Williams and there was sort of in a whole level of celebrity and showbiz that punk rock was sort of existed to existed to confront, and it really wasn't until the was it eighty three or so when eighty two or eighty three when the Z Christmas album, which had the waitresses Christmas wrapping on it, um. That with that album was the first record to come out that was basically Christmas music for me. And Christmas music that wasn't either like my parents' music or Christmas music for children. And that was the point when I started to have my attitude toward Christmas music turn around.
1: And that's such a fantastic compilation. I finally managed to snag a vinyl copy of that this year. Oh, and I was just you. thrilled. Yeah, it's such a, I, I'm a big fan of that compilation as well. And, you know, it did. It's it's a totally different angle on Christmas music. And it was just like, this is like really cool. You know, these artists are really kind of subverting the stereotypes of what Christmas music could be. And doing them in a, in a really good way too. They're good songs yeah. too. Yeah.
0: So this year on Christmas Day, you published a piece at uh, Salon.com on Wham's Last Christmas. What made you want to write about that song?
1: You know, it's funny. First and foremost, it was one of the Christmas songs I've never actually written about in depth. And so I was like, you know what? It's time. You know, I, I wrote about Joni Mitchell's River last year. I've written in the past about... Same old Lang Syne, which is obviously, you know, a New Year's song, but gets kind of lumped in with Christmas, weirdly enough. And, you know, I've written about a bunch of different things. And so I wanted to write about it first that second off, you know, it's sadly enough, it was the five year anniversary of George Michael's passing. Um, And I think people were sort of commemorating that a little bit. And also last Christmas has really in the last few years started to really kind of have a bump in popularity, kind of like how Mariah Carey finally hit number one here Last Christmas finally hit number one in the UK. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that. You know, what was it about, you know, the song that's really endured and become maybe even a little more popular?
0: Yeah. It had its biggest year in the States as well. I mean, it's that since it has since Billboard has changed the way it, you know, it, uh, it calculates plays, et cetera, and sales that it has that it also has slowly crawled up this year. It finished. It peaked at number seven. Uh, which is its highest peak on the uh, on the Hot 100.
1: Which is just wild, you know? I mean, because you figure that came out and, you know, obviously, you know, Christmas music, uh, you know, now has gotten a bump so significantly, but it is, I think, really telling that, you know, that song in particular, people are still really, really gravitating toward.
0: Yeah. So, so go ahead. Can you re- briefly tell the last Christmas story for those who sort of don't know sort of how it came about?
1: Yeah. I mean, so basically, you know, it came out in 1984 um, and, you know, it, it had the the misfortune when it came out in December of 84 as coming out on the same day as Band-Aids. Do they know it's Christmas? So it was doomed from, you know, charts, uh, the, the number one position from the start, at least in the UK. And uh, so it was it was George was kind of competing with himself, which is, you know, funny. Yeah. Um, but it, so basically this was a song that, uh, you know, George basically wrote himself. And so, I mean, one of the things that's really, I think, become more prominent and come out more in recent years is that how much George was, you know, so integral to the sound of Wham! basically, and I guess his solo career as both kind of like a songwriter, a producer, and a musician. You know, a lot of people think of pop music as this prefab thing, you know, there's, you know, puppet masters in the background, you know, pulling marionette strings and things like that. But George was pretty much like, I'm self-taught and I'm going to, you know, figure out things and make all this amazing pop music. And so, yeah, so basically, but and I, I read about it, I didn't realize until really kind of researching the song this year, how it kind of came together. And basically, Andrew Ridgely, his childhood friend, um, was hanging out at uh, Michael's parents' house and, and George like had a flash of inspiration. And he went upstairs and started writing stuff, and he basically came up with Last Christmas. And, you know, they, you know, he, him and Ridgely went up to, you know, George's old bedroom and, you know, and he had come up with a song. And so first and foremost, that it's, it's kind of amazing that, you know, George was at his house and, you know, he's this young man. And, you know, that growing up, he and Ridgely would kind of like, you know, try to make their dreams come true, fooling around, trying to play music. And he came up with Last Christmas there. So, I mean, so first off, that's charming. Um, and so basically, it, but it was very spare instrumentation. You know, we had, uh, you know, basically a Lind, Lindrum drum machine, uh, Roland Juno 60 synth and sleigh bells. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, so the, you know, it's the simplicity is just so that's part of the song's charm, but that's also part of the song's brilliance. You know, it's just really this kind of classic song that doesn't need a lot of layers, doesn't need a lot of instrumentation, and it's not very ostentatious. And, but it still gets this
0: point across. Yeah. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting about it is also, it's kind of the button on the on the end of of Wham! That they record this after they've recorded Make It Big. And so, I think all that's left to do is sort of for them to go to China. But they're really, they're, they don't go in the studio again. Or except maybe, I can't remember if there's... I can't remember if there's some leftover pieces that sneak out afterwards, but I think this was pretty much their last studio project. Um, And it was sort of after everything else. And it was after that, that George decided, decided he was ready to go alone.
1: And so that's and and there's so there's something really bittersweet about that, too. You know, I mean, when, when you look at kind of Wham's career, you put it in that perspective, they were around for such a brief moment in time. I mean, you know, pop. Bands don't aren't necessarily built to, you know, have lengthy, lengthy careers. You know, it's a little bit rarer for groups to be together for decades and, you know, keep doing things. But wham, we're like, you know, uh, you know, a very a sharp, you know, burst of flame for a couple of years that set the charts aflame and really kind of change pop music and, you know, made George a star And then they basically ended and you're right. And then George became a solo artist. I mean, there were even, you know, different wham songs that were credited, you know, with his name on it. So, I mean, there was, they're a really fascinating kind of group just in general, you know, how they kind of, you know, they're very, very of their time, but yet they made all this music that just really, that was so well-crafted and, you know, so fun that people still really gravitate toward it.
0: One of the things I've been obsessing over in the last few years was, I guess, last year during last year, or the year before during Christmas season, they uh, oh their label cleaned up Sony cleaned up the uh, the video and reissued. and And when you see on YouTube, you see the video as it was originally released. It really was as like someone dragged dragged the tape over gravel, <laughs> and you now have this you know, beautiful version. And the video is, is I find hysterical. Um, the, the story of it is basically wham their backing vocalists, uh, friends, including, uh, Gary Kemp from Spandau ballet and their dates go to a Swiss Alps. I mean, go to at the Alps to a chalet, hang out, have a snowball fight, get drunk over dinner, go home. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, So not a lot happens except a lot of smoldering eyes from uh, George Michael to his ex who gave his love away, Kathy Lee, who is now with Andrew Ridgely, who doesn't appear to know any of this.
1: Which is great. I mean, it's it's so brilliant. And, you know, I, I don't know if that was planned at the time. But there, there is there's so much to love about the, the 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 video, and kind of like everything you said because it's just first off like why are they in the Alps? You know why why? You know there's yeah. you, you it's, it's like so many 80s videos. You're kind of like well they just wanted you know a uh, luxurious premise to make it seem very fancy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. And the smoldering looks are what's great because the camera lingers on everyone, you know, it, it looks like it's a, you know, a, a movie waiting to happen. Like it, it should be sort of a, you know, a teen movie or something like it, it's, it's really like funny. Like when in the cleaned up version, it's really great production values. It's, yeah. it's really, uh, you know, it's excellent.
0: Yeah. I mean, George makes sure that the camera always finds him, um, yeah, in exactly the right place, exactly the right look. I mean, so much so that it's a little stiff. Um, but the, uh, there are also, there are so many great 80s coats in there. Yeah. And, and I'd say, I, I had, before thinking about talk. we were talking, I recently checked out of the library Andrew Ridgely's book, uh, Wham! George Michael and Me. And he talks about the video shoot. And basically, someone, they, they basically had access to this uh chalet in the Swiss Alps for like 4 days and so they went and they the, all of the beer all the wine that was actually really drank and there's <laughs> a point there's there was a point he says where the set uh you know where someone you know one of the hands setting the table had filled all the wine glasses and as soon as, the, as soon as the cameraman, the director saw it, he realized it looks like nobody's had a drink yet. So he said, "Y'all got to drink these down." And so <laughs> people started then just started guzzling, and it just said it just turned into like everybody just getting hammered except George. Uh, <laughs> but
1: these books are on my list, and that actually doesn't surprise me. But I, that I think that contributes a lot to the merriment yeah. of the video. You yeah. know, you you watch it, and it's like and the. The 80s hair, like, it's just, it's fabulous. Like, yeah. you know, you, you, you feel like, you know, Demi Moore is going to walk out at any moment or like Rob Lowe or something like that. It's, it's that type of video.
0: Absolutely. Um, have you seen the video uh, by, for the cover of Last Christmas by Chai, the Japanese I band?
1: Not, I, I did not realize until you mentioned that to me that they did a cover of it. Like, I'm, I'm a fan of them and I totally missed that.
0: Well, it, it came out on Christmas Day this year. And it's Chai is an all-woman uh, band from Japan. And the great thing is the video itself is also a riff on the Wham video. Um, it's, not, it's not a remake, but a lot of the same things happen. You have members of the band shooting each other the meaningful looks. And there's a scene where one member of the band is leaning on the other and playing with the brooch that was, uh, was given... That was the gift. And so there's a whole lot of playing with the Wham uh, version. and so it's excellent. A lot of you know it's great as a song, it's great as a video. and you also have some cool gender politics in there and sexuality politics that are uh, worth the attention. So um, it, so it's well worth checking out.
1: And I love that the video itself, too, is, is kind of, you know, just as iconic as the song. And I think, you know, kind of like so many songs in the 80s, it all fed into each other. You know, I think, uh, you know, when the promos for Lady Gaga's House of Gucci came out, you know, they definitely had some, you know, they looked like they were on the last Christmas, you know, video set. It was all very, you know, bundled up and and things like that. So it was, it's pretty great. Yeah.
0: So- so last Christmas inspired the social media game Whamageddon, which Wikipedia dates back to 2010, uh, although it says it also became more popular around 2017. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming when sort of social media became a bigger and sort of became omnipresent. The, the idea is to, av- if you don't know, the idea is to avoid hearing it. And if players hear it, they have to post Whamageddon on their social media and they're out for the season. Um, so first off, so first, I guess, what do you think about this, the game? And then also, why do you think this song inspired that kind of game?
1: See, I, I, I am not a fan of the game because, like, why would you want to avoid hearing that song? I mean, that song, I mean, I'm granted I'm biased because I love the song, but, you know, it, it makes you happy when you hear it. And so I'm, I'm not, you know, I think it I think it potentially started off as kind of a joke. Um, just someone, you know, being silly, but, you know, I, and I don't necessarily think people take it super seriously. Obviously people follow the game, but it's not like anything ruthless or anything like that. You know, I mean, Chris Butler of the waitresses, he does a thing every year where the first person to hear, um, Christmas rapping, you know, like he'll, he, he has people reach out to him and then, you know, he makes a game out of it. And so like, right. that's something that's kind of fun. You know, it's more like, Hey, when you hear the song, tell me not like, Oh, if you hear the song and you know, you're out of the game. Yeah. And I, I think just because, I mean, first off, it's I, I think, you know, it, it's become so popular, partly because you're right, because of social media and it's also kind of fun to say whamageddon. I think, you know, that that's a pretty, uh, pretty great hashtag marketing wise, marketing wise. So, I you know, I think it's just something fun. I think, you know, that that's been, you know, people like to have fun with Christmas music. And that's why I think people don't necessarily take it super seriously. Um, they just sort of, you know, have it as kind of like a game. Yeah. See, I have to
0: say one thing. I will give the people who are, you know, who play, I mean, because I'm like you now, I have a hard time imagining why you would want to do that. But I, at the same time, the song took me a little while to to really connect to. I, I now like it a lot. I always liked it as pop. But I have to say, uh, there was a point when I liked cover versions more than I liked the original because I found the whole sort of schoolyard vibe of it, the... Uh, you know, I gave you my heart. You know, you gave it. You know, you you gave it away. So I'll give it to someone special. And that, like, the, the kind of "I'm rubber, you're glue" kind of uh, <laughs> logic of the uh, of that uh, of the song. For a while, that felt a little that felt a little juvenile to me. Um, as time has passed, you know, like like great pop, there's a point where everything else about the song is so good that it kind of gets you, through the, gets you through the parts you're not so fond of. Um, how do you deal with that? Does, does, it, does it or did it ever strike you that way?
1: You know, it's funny. I, I think because I've always really loved 80s music. I, I think I've, Last Christmas has always just been one of the songs that I like. And because it is so omnipresent on radio, I mean, I just I've always associated the song with the holiday season. It always makes me happy because I really like the holidays Mm -hmm. um, a lot. And so, you know, I've and it's funny until like recently, you know, and I really dug into the lyrics because you're right. Like, you know, the the chorus, you know, I'll save you from something special. You know, it's such a good, uh, you know, it's such a good chorus that I was like, okay, this is fun. And then you read the verses. You're like, there's a lot going on here. And so I liked it even more, honestly, when, when I kind of like really took a listen to it I'm like, there's, there's some kind of subtle brilliance in here. And I think, you know, it's a lot sassier than uh, the song gets credit for. I think sometimes a lot sassier than a lot of other holiday songs too.
0: That's definitely true. So (laughs) part of my interest in Christmas music is how the songs pass through other hands and what happens to them in covers. So, I brought a few of the conversation and I asked you to do the same. So since you're a guest, you're the guest, tell me what cover of last Christmas should we hear first?
1: So I love Jimmy world's cover of the song and, um, I should probably have looked up what year this came out. I'm going to look that up right now. Um, but I, I can't even remember when I heard this song first. Um, I heard it so many, many, many years ago. It was probably, um, Let's see. So it was released in 2001. And so that was kind of around the time when I was really becoming a bigger fan of Jimmy Eat World. That was around the time of the middle and their big record, um, Bleed American. Um, and I just I, I love the version of it. Like so Jimmy Eat World, I, you know, if, if, if for people not familiar with the band. They can be a little kind of hard edged, I guess. Maybe, you know, they're they're classified as emo. And I I use that kind of in air quotes, um, but they're a little bit more punkish, can be a little more power pop sometimes. But their version of this was really kind of, it really tapped into the melancholy and kind of tapped into the pleading and yearning vibe of the song. And it's just a really, you know, it's just a really kind of a beautiful arrangement of it too. You know, a Jim Atkins, their lead singer, is a very emotional singer and he's really, really good at kind of tapping into anger and kind of you know sadness and you know and so but he really kind of takes the latter emotion here yeah and so I, I just love it like it's that's long been one of my favorite covers
0: all right all right we'll hear it and then i'll come back and i'll, I'll give you give you a thought my thought or two on it so so this is jimmy eat world and last christmas really glad you brought that because first I didn't know that version Uh, so that's really cool Um, I also really like for me the first thing I flashed on is if The Cure ever did a Christmas song and ever got happy enough to do a Christmas song this is what they would end up with Um, that that the vibe where you know the melancholy is sort of hardwired in but like sort of The Cure at their poppiest that you also have just the music is sort of so undeniable that I'm 100% there for it. Uh, so I thought that was really charming. Um, and actually one I will go back to.
1: Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Ha, ha,
0: ha, ha. So one that I wanted to draw attention to is uh, Carly Rae Jepsen's version from 2015. And you know, one of the things I've been thinking about about the song is in many ways, just sort of what a solid, solidly constructed song it is. And part of that you could see in how many different places people could go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, like while I was prepping for today, I was listening to Eli, pa- Eli Paperboy Reed, who had a um, sort of a, a horn-driven R&B version of it. And I was listening, and I just found actually kind of a cool um, chill-out version uh, lo-fi version by an LA producer named Uzu U-Z-U, and I mean it's like lo-fi. A lot of lo-fi is pretty much it's simple. It's a piano production and a drum machine, um, but it's but it's awfully cool. And people have found a lot of places to go with this song. Um, I think that's really interesting and a mark of what a good song it is. Actually, I got to say another one that helped me turn me around, turn me around on the song. Was Taylor Swift's version, uh, which yes. I quite liked, and um, and someone who for whom, at the time when Taylor recorded it, it made so much sense. I thought when I first that kind of helped me come to it because I realized you know it was Taylor after her first album, and she was at that point somebody for whom those you know those lyrics seemed completely you know uh, completely appropriate. They, they felt age appropriate. And so I was very much there for that version. And once I kind of made that connection, I was ready to move forward with it. But back to Carly Ray Jepsen, I felt like she, her version, first I liked that she picked up the electronic elements uh, that are so important to the Wham version, but she's also somebody for whom the lyric felt very much uh, sort of in her sort of conceptual wheelhouse. Uh, that's, you know, so the lyric, you know, her, the lyrics felt like of a piece, the person who would sing call me, maybe would also sing last Christmas. So anyway, so we'll go to that and then see if you have thoughts on that version as well. So this is Carly Rae Jepsen 2015 and her version of last Christmas. (laughs) to add about that one
1: no i i think i think your comments were great and i completely agree you know i mean she is she's such an interesting artist in that you know everything she does is you know she she's I, i'm trying to think here how to praise this no i mean she is you know obviously she's she's released so many great studio records But her covers, too, that she's done, you know, the occasional ones are great. And she really does sort of tap into, you know, the complexity of the song, I think. And I think that's what makes her music so good, her originals. And I think, yeah, something like this, like she's kind of the ability to kind of zero in on that,
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. At one point when I was writing about it, I wrote that, you know, the song says, you know, uh, once bitten (laughs) twice shy and sounds like she's been bitten like 15 times. (laughs) 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 so another song you wanted you brought to the table manic street preachers uh and their version last christmas
1: so i it's funny i actually don't know if they've ever uh released this on a studio record but i came across this at some point and it's basically kind of a live version of it and now what I first off, what I like about it is that they're sort of a, a you wouldn't expect them to cover this. You know, obviously that they're um, you know they're British and so they you know wham is something that you know is they uh, you know grew up with and you know obviously they were sort of inescapable. But you know they're they're really you know they came out with like you know the mash theme was like you know they covered that you know they were they they started off with this kind of like this punkish metal band and over the years have evolved and done all sorts of different things. But there's just like this great live vi- uh, video of them doing this. And it's basically like they're kind of in public and they're doing things. And like, it's great. It really shows off a different side of them. And, you know, you, I, I feel like in the early 2000s, there was this kind of ironic, you know, people would like to do ironic covers, you know, you had or covers that were maybe unexpected. And I feel like at the era where they did that, because I think they did this in the early 2000s, it was kind of part and parcel of that. But I think there's a real kind of sincerity to it that just really kind of works um, and just kind of really shows the different side of the band, but I'm a huge Manic Street Preachers fan. right? And so, okay. So actually it was the mid nineties where they do that, which is even oh. funnier. Cause this sort of when they were like at their height, exactly. Uh, apparently like there was a Christmas edition of a UK show and they, they did the song. And so this was like, right. So everything must go was like 1996. And so uh, you know, it was, so it's sort of like, you know, so that was only like 12 years removed from the song being a hit. So I think that was just kind of, it was kind of an interesting choice. And I think that, uh, you know, as the, as their catalog kind of wound around and they, like I said, they've done disco, they've done pop, they've done rock, like they're, they're such a great band. It's kind of one of those like more obscurities that you don't necessarily see as much, but it's great. It's just really lovely. Yeah. Last Christmas again.
0: I give it to someone special. Last Christmas I gave my heart. I have to say that's another version I didn't know already so thank you. And and I got to say that helped me appreciate Manic Street Preachers cuz they're a band whose name I loved and who but I, I very rarely have heard First, when I didn't hear them be that when one of the things I don't find them is manic uh and kind of once that wasn't a part of their, I kind of expected a more furious sound from them, and so I kind of at some point stopped looking for more when i when there's so much music that I was plugging into, trying to figure out why people are into manic Street preachers is a question I just sort of let put on the side and but I have to say in this that you could hear the, uh, in that, in the vocal, the things, it's not, it's not showy, but the complete commitment to the vocal is like, okay, I want to know more about what that guy has to say. I want to hear him do more stuff and I want to hear, hear more of where he goes. And so, um, that I I think makes, uh, was, was really handy to me. And I got to say, that is one of the things I think I've come to really appreciate uh, about listening to Christmas covers is that hearing someone I don't know doing a song I do in some way frequently makes it easier to hone in on who they are and uh, who the artist is or hear them in a context I recognize I, is able for me to hear what they're doing in a way that hearing them in their own songs, in their own context sometimes is harder. And now I'm more interested in the fact that you tell me about the '90s because, at that time, the song hadn't yet, sort of had had a chance to cycle back and become nostalgically cool. At this point, they would have been; it would have been an uncool cover for the most part. And so, for them to go back and invest whatever cultural capital they had at the time in a song that their many of their fans would have thought was a joke and was sort of the was a version of the pop that they were there to replace and to kick to the curb. That's pretty cool. That's where they choose to spend their cool. Um, I'm there, I'm in, I'm in there for that one. So I like that a lot.
1: Awesome. I love hearing that. And there's, there's so much more Manic Street Preachers to explore too. Okay. Oh, and you're right. You know, I think in the nineties, you know, New Wave had kind of a, a weird, there was a definitely a weird fascination with New Wave, but, yeah, I, I don't necessarily remember Wham, you know, kind of having that kind of cool bump in the way other bands did. Right. And so, and it's great. And, you know, and, and I think it speaks to kind of, they they had really kind of become a little more sentimental and just kind of a little bit more like around that time. And so in hindsight, I'm like, wow, that makes brilliant sense. But you're right. At the time, it might have been like, all right, okay. So, yeah, I love it.
0: So, So, I was going to play a song that I heard this year, uh, a version of "Last Christmas" by a Japanese band called Boris, which is which is a great giant wall of noise, <laughs> out of which comes a woman singing the song, and you can hear the melody and you can hear sleigh bells, and I think it's remarkable. And by and early on. It is so big and so distorted that when you first have the wall of sound kick in, you're not sure that this isn't just going to be three or four minutes of just grinding sound. And about two minutes in, the sound is beautifully organized and you have found your home in it. But I realized while thinking about this that since podcasts are mono, uh, mine is, that this is probably going to sound loud, really lousy, and that is <laughs> there's a good chance that people listening will not hear what I hear. So instead, I decided, first off, if you haven't heard it and you have any taste for adventure at all, you should hear Boris's version of Last Christmas. But instead, I decided to go to a version by Lucy Dacus that she recorded nice. in 2019. And Lucy she Lucy said she doesn't particularly like the song that it's not that uh, all the sort of the the sentimental the all sort of the soap opera of the song doesn't connect to her and she's ambivalent about Christmas music and so she basically told her band let's go in and play hard and as a result you get this great sort of you know punk rock version and that and you hear again kind of how, you know, how solidly this song is constructed, that you can take out all the delicate wistfulness, you can take out all the melancholy, you can take out the sleigh bells, you can take out the, uh, you know, the electronic sounds that are so central to one version, put in guitars, bass, drums, and uh, speed up the tempo, and you still get a really good song. Anything to add to that one?
1: No, I just, I'm such a fan of hers and in her band is so good that it's just like, it just works. And, you know, this is, she's just so great. So I love it. Yeah. And, and
0: to be, and to put it in context, at this point, she was working on a series of songs that were all sort of tied to different events throughout the year. So this wasn't that she was doing a Christmas record or sort of, and, and that she didn't make a bad faith Christmas record she made a Christmas song that was in sync with this bigger project. Because um, I have to say, one of the things I, I dislike is people who then make a Christmas record to then basically dump on Christmas and say, you know, that, that thing you like, I think it's really stupid to like it. And it's like, <laughs> make a Christmas, if you're going to make the song, be in, you know, br- embrace it. Um, and she embraces the song well enough to do it well but in this case she wasn't setting out to do a christmas record specifically she was really setting out to do another seasonal record and have it the 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 body sort of reflect her attitudes towards the holidays and towards sort of seasonal music so what do you think accounts for the endurance of last christmas
1: man that's such a big question um i mean kind of what we were just talking about you see how many covers there are you know that goes a long way to helping a song endure because there's so many people have taken the song and interpreted it in so many different ways and come up with new and different ways of, you know, making the song their own. I think that goes a long way into helping a song survive because more and more people hear it, you know, maybe they're, Maybe you're listening to Lucy Dacus, and she's like one of your favorite artists. You're like, what is this song? And you might go back and listen to the original. Second off, I I just think, I mean, for starters, too, I think that 80s music is kind of back in fashion. And it never really went out of fashion, but I think there's a lot more fascination with the 80s now. I mean, you hear that in modern bands that use a lot more synthesizers. And there's a lot of, you know, because of in different pop culture things, you know, Stranger Things and other TV shows and movies, there really is kind of a fascination with the 80s. And so that's helped. I also just think the lyrics are kind of timeless. You know, you either everyone can relate to like being dumped around the holidays and or getting, you know, revenge on someone else or wanting to have revenge or, you know, being with someone new, but then like still seeing the, you know, the 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 X that just kind of twists your heart. You know, it's, they're very, very relatable. You know, it's a song that's kind of, it's called Last Christmas, but, you know, the sentiments are very universal. That could happen any time of year and it would still hurt as 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 much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have to say, one the one piece to add to that as well is that, for my mind, one of Wham's geniuses, George Michael's geniuses, was that to make pop songs that sounded familiar the first time you heard them. You can hear elements of Motown in it, but it's not straight Motown. You can hear elements of R&B, but it's not pure. It's definitely not an R&B song. And there is, you know, there's just this core familiarity across the board, which I think, which also gives it that kind of uh, immediacy. I mean, the fact is, that's one of those songs that by the time, by the second time, certainly by the third time you get to the chorus, you can sing it. And I always think that's the mark of a great song is how fast is it before you can sing along?
1: I think that's a fabulous point. And I completely agree. You know, there is some, there's that warmth to it. You know, I think a lot of Christmas songs, just because, you know, you have sleigh bells and you're referencing snow, you know, some of them can be a little chilly. And this is so warm, you know, even though it's a song about something that's kind of heartbreaking it's still a very welcoming song and you know it's it it does feel like you've heard it before but yet it it goes into different places and yeah there's just there's so many it's just such a well-constructed song that it's just there's so much brilliance to it
0: Thanks to Annie for the time and the talk. We're both on Twitter and the Book of Face, so we're easily found if you want to join the conversation. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music. Thanks to you for listening. If you're not already getting 12 songs in your podcast feeds, subscribe, follow, and like us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple person, a five star review helps others find out about 12 songs. During our conversation, I told Annie that I was thinking about putting the version of Last Christmas by the Japanese noise rock band Boris up for our discussion, but I was worried that its sound and what's cool about it might not survive translation to the miracle of podcasting. I'm still not sure, but since it's the Christmas track I probably listened to most last holiday season, I can't resist sharing it. If it's too hard on the ears, I'll understand if you check out before the final fade. If you can hear the magic in this brief excerpt, find the full-length version on Boris's Bandcamp page because the song only becomes clearer and richer as your ears acclimate to the wall of distortion and you'll find the harmonically rich version at its heart. Talk to you next week.